macro trading floor. With me, Alfonso Peccatiello, founder of the Macro Compass and former head of investments at a large European bank. And I am Brent Donnelly, president of Spectrum Markets. I've been a portfolio manager, day trader, and market maker at the biggest commercial and investment banks in the United States. I'm also the author of Alpha Trader and the Art of Currency Trading. If you want to know what's going on in markets and where they're going, you found the right podcast. Welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, and today with me is not my friend Andrea Steno anymore, but the new co-host of the Macro Trading Floor. Honored to introduce my friend, Brent Donnelly. Hey, Brent, how are you doing? Hey, hey Alf. I'm great. This is exciting. It's I've wanted to have my own podcast. I've been on so many podcasts, but I've never had my own. So now I have. I guess I have half of one with you. Well. Let's uh, give it a go. It's going to be fun. But uh, people, I mean, I assume people know who Brand Donnelly is, but, you know, why don't you tell them who Brand Donnelly is? Sure. Um, so I'm the author of a couple of books, Alpha Trader and The Art of Currency Trading. And I've basically been trading my whole life. So I was a day trader in the dot com. Uh, I was a market maker at a bunch of US banks. Um, I was a PM at a hedge fund in Connecticut for a while. So I've kind of done like the trading on on most sizes, like from the smallest to the, lar the largest. And uh, I do a lot of writing about markets as well. So I'm a writer and a trader. That's a very fair summary. I would say also uh, an underestimated one. I'd say you're one of the smartest educator on trading out there. Very good guy on FX for sure. Bold like me, that's important too. You know, it's like a, a new requirement for co-hosts and guests at the Macro Trading Floor. Uh, but um Let's say, uh, why don't we give it a go? Introductions, fair enough for now. I'm going to ask you the question that I think it's top of the mind for most people out there. Which camp are you in, Brent? Soft landing, hard landing, or no landing, whatever that means. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in soft landing and I've been in, in there for a while. And the challenge though, from a trading point of view, or even from an investing point of view, is when the regime that you're in matches the view that you have and you don't really see have a differential view it's very hard to know what to do with that so when the fed was priced for six or seven cuts at the start of the year i mean i was definitely not the only person saying this but it it just seemed totally wrong to me given where gdp and jobs and everything were um, but now that we're at three cuts i think it's just a lot more difficult to take the other side and the other thing too is that the Fed's dots um, are are forecasting three cuts, so I think it's going to be difficult to get through here because there's kind of a psychological aspect to the dots, even if they're wrong a lot. There still is some psychology around. Okay, well, we're not going to price less than than the dots. That seems kind of outrageous. So I, I think right now, like Druck, Druck and Miller once said, you have to look eighteen to twenty four months out. You can't just trade what's right in front of you. And what it looks like to me is the soft landing continues and inflation sl slowly comes off. So to me, it's a tough one to trade. And I think that's part of why volatility has been low is that there's not really an obvious narrative other than just soft landing, which has been going on for a while. So what are you thinking about central banks in general? I would say that on the Fed, uh, it's interesting that if you look at the distribution of potential outcomes by the end of the year, we started the year with the modal outcome, which was three or four cuts. So that was okay. But the problem is that there was still this fat recessionary tail out there, right? And so it skewed the pricing to six or seven, which was right. way too much in hindsight. So now if you look at the distribution, you are 
having a model outcome of two cuts, not even three, and then a small tail, which brings the mean price into three cuts. And as you said, uh, Brand, like it's a bit like an insurance premium, right? I mean, the Fed is telling you they will do three. Williams, which is a very heavy guy at the Fed, is telling you that he, he doesn't have a problem with quarterly pay starting from June. Translating June, September, December, that's three cuts. Uh, yeah. The SEP says three cuts. So it's a bit hard uh, going against this here. Uh, at the same time, if you want to buy bonds, so you want to receive interest rates, you need to have a view that something will deteriorate soon. And, you know, the Atlanta GDP now, which, as you said, as you showed a couple of times in Spectra, is a better forward-leading indicator and predictor of GDP than actually economists are. Uh, the last print is at 3% real for Q1. So, you know, not that easy, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you made an interesting point there about the risk premium, because I think a lot of the rates pricing is kind of like an S&P put in a way, like, you know, you know that they're probably not going to cut six times, but if everything goes to hell, they might cut 10 times. So there's a probabilistic element. And in FX options, there's no risk premium anymore either. So like the same way that um, the Fed went from six to three, which is a lot of that is just the the risk premium coming out for a collapse, right? And if you look at options markets as well, things like Aussie, there, there's no no bid for downside Aussie anymore at all. Um, like it's at five-year highs or something like that. So it's it, if you look across everything, there's just nothing, no risk premium in anything, credit, in equities in anything. I was looking at my uh, option implied probabilities of recession, and it started the year at about 22% for the end of this year. So how I derive them is I look at the December 2024 contracts in Fed funds or in SOFR. And then I say, hey, if there is a recession, how much has the Fed historically cut? And you know, you get some answers like, I don't know, 200, 300 basis points. Then you put a midpoint and you say, hey, if I would construct an option trade uh, that actually isolates that payoff only, right? That Fed funds collapse that rapidly. How much do I need to pay against how much am I paid if I'm right? right. And, and that resulting uh, answer is basically the market implied probability. And it started the year at 22%, which if you think about it, is relatively high. I mean, a recession tends to happen once every, what, 10 years on average? Yeah. Do you know how high it got last year? When, when yes, I was calculating were... that, um, 43%. Oh, wow. Okay. That was a, if you had an opinion that the banking crisis wasn't going to be a crisis, that was a great odds to play, right? Because right, right. 43%. But I remember you saying that the actual execution of that trade was difficult because rates markets were going so crazy at that time because of the short gamma and all that. I, I really remember, Brand, that uh, because I've worked in banking for so long, I had an advantage point in analyzing the situation, you know, HQLA and iLiquid assets and what does that mean? I was into that literally uh, in my previous job. So yeah. I had a great advantage point. And when I ran the numbers, I figured out that, well, that, that wasn't going to be a problem. Then they came with BTFP and the market was still pricing mayhem. So I had a great reading and then I went to trade it and the market was jumping 50 basis point a day. So it was very, very hard uh, not being stopped out in that in that environment, which teaches you a lesson, right? You can be right, but the execution and the timing and the structuring of your trade is even more important sometimes than whether you're right or wrong on the thesis. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've been right and lost money so many times. Uh, in 2020, 
everything was so volatile and actually 2008 as well that if you're it, it didn't really matter your idea was less important than your structure because it was so hard to size correctly in when volatility was that high and yeah. i think that's true a lot of the time that that structuring is very underappreciated trade structuring yeah we're gonna give um a resource for people to have read at uh, an article that talks about the Kelly criterion, which is a very interesting resource when it comes to sizing. Um, so at the end of at the end of the podcast, but you asked the initial question about other central banks, and I ranted about the Fed. Right, typical yeah. Italian way. You know, you ask something, he moves his hands and replies something else. Very Italian. Um, but now about other central banks as well. I mean, what strikes me really is that all central banks in the world have basically tried to follow the Fed. I mean, maybe they haven't hiked 500 basis points, but they have hiked 400 plus. Take the ECB, take the Riksbank in Sweden. I mean, even countries that are uh, you know, known to be more vulnerable have still hiked quite a lot. And now we're at a point where they've kept rates very high. They're waiting basically for the Fed to move, in other words, to really make a move as well. And I don't know if all these countries' brand can really handle the same level of tightening for as long as the Fed is trying to impose on the U.S. economy. And in some cases, you see that already happening in GDP, like maybe in Canada or in Sweden or in Europe or in the U.K., you're flirting with 0 to 1% real GDP numbers. Yeah, and that, makes, Zealand, me, that yeah. makes me wonder, right? Yeah, New Zealand as well. It, it is amazing if you overlay, say, like Bank of England and Fed. They just did the exact same thing at the exact same time. And I mean, like inflation was different. There's differences in the economies, yeah. but it was kind of mind, mind numbing how there wasn't really any differential of policy that it, everyone just did the same thing at the same time. And so now you look, yeah, I, I agree. And, and now you look at what the market is pricing in for other central banks, right? So you look at the Fed and the market is, I think, moving slowly towards a 90-95 type of pricing where you have three cuts basically done, uh, sort of an insurance cuts, like adjustment cuts basically. Yeah. And then in 1996, seven and eight, the Fed did nothing at all effectively for three years. So uh, that was the cutting cycle, just three adjustment cuts and that was yeah. it. And I think the market is, well, not really there because we're pricing three and then another three in 2025. But I think there is a chance that it slowly moves towards that type of idea, right? It's only a few adjustment cuts, but now the market is trying to do the same as well for Europe and for Sweden, and for the UK. And I don't think that that's going to work, really. Yeah, I mean, that's funny in Canada, too. Like, the setup, is, Canada's economy is so much weaker than the US, but yet the number of cuts was less in Canada. I mean, now it's kind of narrowed, but for a while, the, I think there was six in the US and four in Canada, which makes absolutely no sense to me. So when we look at broader economies, can we find ideas for people like when you analyze an economy, how do you think about whether that's more or less vulnerable to a tightening cycle? I mean, I have a framework that, that I can talk about, but first the question goes to you. How do you think about which economies are more fragile and vulnerable to a tightening cycle than others? So generally what I do is I look at what the central bank looks at. I just find that's the easiest way because mostly I'm trying to handicap what they're going to do. So like the Bank of Canada, if you read their financial stability report, you'll basically see everything that they're worried about. Mm -hmm. And to me, what I'm worried about doesn't matter. Like what my opinion is on the Canadian economy or what is important, it that just doesn't matter compared to what the Bank of Canada thinks. So that's generally what I do for all the, all the countries is read the central bank stuff, um, even though it's boring, and then extract what they're looking at. Like Remember when Powell had that, or sorry, it was Yellen 
had the the dashboard. Oh yeah. Yeah. The labor market dashboard or whatever. Those, I mean, to me, it's just common sense. They're like the masters of the game pulling the levers. So you need to know what, what they care about. And also like, I don't think that I have the, the chops to, to create my own indicators and all that. So generally I kind of follow like simplicity and like in the U S look at the major workhorse data, you can always find weakness somewhere, right? Like the household survey, which is just basically NFP, but five times more volatile. And to me is a completely useless statistic, but if, or you can look into different components of NFP, you can always find something that's weak. But so for me, I, I feel like just looking at the major data is the best approach. And then of course you, you want to dig into the details, mm-hmm. but I think the risk is that if you have a bias, you can always feed that bias because there's so many data points to choose from. Yeah, that's true. Like uh, last year, uh, I, amongst many other people, fell victim of trying to really find where the weakness was. And the idea was, look, the Fed has tightened aggressively. Uh, it's been tight for a while. There, mu- there must be an area of weakness for the labor market. And in cyclical industries, yes, of course, it was weaker than in non-cyclical industries, but overall, it was holding up pretty okay at the end of the day. And then I asked myself, why is that? Like, why is that the US is holding so well with interest rates so high? And then I basically went with the framework to try and understand what makes an economy vulnerable to rising interest rates. And if you think about it, it's pretty simple. The way that it becomes an economy becomes vulnerable is if, if you rise hike interest rates and then households and corporates have the same amount of or similar amount of earnings and wages that's their disposable income and then by you raising interest rates they will be forced to allocate more of that income into debt servicing rather than into consumer spending capex hiring whatever right so the economy slows very simple like textbook and now you look at the us and all of that of course isn't happening isn't happening because interest rates like that has been fixed for 30 years from the private sector very smartly at low interest rates between 2017 and 2021. So the refinancing needs in terms of notional really aren't there yet. You've got to wait a lot longer for the refinancing cycle to hit. Variable interest rates are not a thing in the US. So the pass-through of higher interest rates today through mortgage expenses to a household doesn't exist basically uh, to an existing uh, mortgage owner that is who, who has fixed this interest rate for 30 years. And you look at these things and you're like, okay, let's have a look at how the structure of the private debt market is in Canada or in Sweden or in New Zealand. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden you realize why the tightening has fed through very rapidly there. Well, and those countries do have very weak GDP. And I think a part of it is that disposable income is getting sucked out by the mortgage resets. But I think the mistake that I made was thinking that the mortgage reset story would be like a wall Mm-hmm. that the economy would hit, but it doesn't really work that way because it's staggered, right? So yeah. everyone's mortgage is resetting at different times. There's like, they call it the maturity wall, but that's like, if you look at a yearly chart, you see what year that there's a lot of maturities, but in reality that everyone's mortgage is resetting like on a different day and a different year. And so I think it is sucking a lot of disposable income out of Canada, New Zealand, and, and probably the UK as well, mm-hmm. but it's so gradual and it, as long as you have a job, you can pay, even if your mortgage payment goes from 2,600 to 4,200, if you're employed, you can figure out a way to pay it. So the real shit hits the fan 
when the jobs market turns. Yeah. So it's the corporate refinancing cycle that I think is uh, a bit more relevant, Brent, overall in, in the big scheme of things, because yeah. if a corporate finds that, for example, in Europe, I was looking at it, right? And, and European corporates have been blessed between 2015 and 2017, because hear me out, a triple B rated corporate in Europe could borrow for seven to 10 years at one and a half percent all in nominal interest rate. I mean, that's amazing, uh, right? And they you know did. it's criminal, sorry to interrupt, but it's criminal that the governments, uh, the US government did, didn't do that at the time. Like they, they had so much two year stuff, they could have rolled it to a hundred years at 2%. But anyways, well, the corporates and the, and the individuals did it, but the government didn't for some reason. Yeah, I think the size also matters. I mean, if the government will go and issue 200 years bonds, it's a lot of duration to absorb. So there must be right. a, buyer, a buyer on the other side too. Uh, but there was a buyer for corporate bonds at one and a half percent. Right, uh, in Austrian, Europe. Uh, Austrian, whatever, Austrian 100 years. Austrian 100 years, also a fantastic deal for Austria, oh, uh, which which is a small, tiny country. I mean, if, if people extract right. this to the US, it, it's a bit harder, right? To, to, yeah, to there's approach. probably technical issues. Yeah. yeah. But but I I appreciate the, the, the thought process there. But what it really surprised me is that, it doesn't surprise me, but it's a thing. European corporates borrowed in 2015 to 2017 at 1.5% for 10 years. Who wouldn't? Uh, but then if you run the numbers... 2016 plus seven to eight years is 2024. So then most of these bonds are coming due and the average maturity for uh, European investment grade issuance is about seven to eight years. So the, 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 the body of the distribution of maturities in Europe is more concentrated into 2024. And if corporates have to refinance right now in Europe, they don't find one and a half percent anymore as their borrowing rate, all of a sudden it's four and a half percent. And that right. might make the difference on a business model, Brent, where you know, your interest costs are much higher. So your hiring capacity might actually go down and you might be even be forced to, you know, reduce a bit your workforce if you can't meet um, your costs with your earnings at the end of the day. And then and then that snowball effects might start like, like you discussed before. Like if you lose your job, then it's a different story to be able to service a mortgage rate at much higher interest rates, right? Because you just right. lost your disposable income, then you're forced to sell, et cetera, et cetera. But if the job market doesn't crack first, then it's it's a much more staggered uh, thing. Yeah, you can keep the balls in the air. And just on Europe, like obviously they're kind of levered a little bit to China. Um, I just want to pivot to China for a second because sure. I, I know you wrote the piece, uh, was it last week, I think? Mm -hmm. um, but what are you thinking on China these days? Well, I think it's like a situation where they are not in a full balance sheet recession, but they are in a situation where they're surely deleveraging. Like the private sector doesn't want to hear about levering up. Chinese corporates have stopped levering up in 2016, actually. So if you check the corporate leverage data in China, they have basically said, enough, we don't want any more from 2016. But the households have taken the baton and the state-owned enterprises in China, right? But at some point, the households take the leverage brand and they put it in the property sector and house prices go up, up and up and everyone is happy. It's a bit like Japan in the 1990s, basically, in the 1980s, sorry, basically. And then at some point back there, it was the Bank of Japan who said, party's over, we're going to raise interest rates. And then the, the private credit bubble burst. And in China, it was the PBOC, but it was the Xi Jinping. You know, he said that he wanted to change the business model of China from property and tech towards internal consumption-based type of model, right? And so you right. delever this 
these bubbles, basically. But I think he underestimated the extent of the deleverage. Yeah. You know, it's pretty big. Like the Chinese market in 2021, the property market was a, hear me out, $50 trillion market wow. cap market. That's larger than the US stock market back then. I mean, geez, wow. it's gigantic. So you deleverage that. And uh, what they're doing now, I think it's, it's uh, not very smart. So they have now started to lower interest rates, uh, which is exactly what Japan did, by the way, in the 90s, to try and fight this, this problem uh, of, of a real estate bubble bursting. And right. I plotted a chart, in, a chart in one of my articles that showed uh, Japanese house prices that kept falling in the 90s, despite 10-year Japanese bonds moving from 8% to 1%. Right, so the like, interest rate isn't the problem. Yeah, it, it, Like you can't force people to take on more mortgages if they've just been burned by having a mortgage underwater. I mean, sorry, but that doesn't work. And I, China is, is lowering the prime loan rate, which is basically the benchmark they use for mortgages in China. So yes. I think they're trying to stimulate more mortgages through lowering rates for people who have already too many mortgages that have been hurt with it. That doesn't work. And, and many people smarter than me on China say that they should go with, with targeted fiscal stimulus. And that should be like uh, the backstop for all this. But they, they, they aren't doing that, Brent. They aren't. Right. They, they seem to be playing a little bit of a different game where they're trying to get to some kind of healthy growth, but maybe that's going to take five years of deleveraging to get there or, yeah. or more. I don't know. I mean, it took Japan, what, 15 years or something. Yeah. So to me, it seems like they're controlling the downside or they're trying to control the downside rather than really do something to uh, unlock the upside in all of this, right? They just want to deleverage the economy, but if they can, they want to do it in a controlled fashion. Now, there are a couple of uh, potential release valves for it. So if you want to keep lowering interest rates, Chinese third-year government bonds are at, I think, the lowest yield ever, uh, just hit a few days ago. Um, and, you know, you might want to argue who stops them from lowering interest rates further. And if they lower interest rates further, what about the interest rate differentials between the renminbi and the dollar? And right. I mean, dollar China is really interesting right now because it's positive carry and it's kind of a tail trade too, right? If Trump mm -hmm. comes in and and puts a huge tariff, or if something happens in Taiwan, so you're kind of long the tail and positive carry, which is rare. Usually, if you want to have if you want to buy insurance, usually you have to pay for it. But this is like owning insurance, but they pay you. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice setup, which exists probably also, and the ball isn't very high probably because China is a ton of effects reserves. So if they want to yeah. protect the currency, they can for a relatively long period of time. So you, you yeah. Know, you and I mean, they do that in the market. They, they either prioritize stability or appreciation or depreciation yeah. and they've been prioritizing stability. So, I mean, it just hasn't been moving, but the thing is like when Evergrande was going down in uh, 2021, the same thing happened. They kept the currency for a while and then eventually they go, okay, Panic's over. We can let it weaken, and and then it weakened dramatically after that. Correct. And you get paid to wait. So yeah, it's it's an interesting idea for sure. Uh, because the other way to play China here would be to continue assuming that Chinese equities are used as a liquidity source for people who and corporates who are deleveraging. So they basically try and sell any assets they have to raise cash to meet liabilities. So they will sell. Chinese equities as well. But there, the problem is that the authorities might come in someday and say enough. 
okay. we're going to just buy the equity market. I mean, it's China. They can do basically whatever they want at the end of the day, right? They yeah. can have some, some state-owned enterprise, lift the market, and, and then I you're I feel like out. when they start changing the rules, like that's what happened in 08, 09 in the US too, right? As they abandoned mark to market, banned short selling. Once they start doing all that stuff, you're just fighting a really difficult battle like yeah. when the authorities, like if the authorities are serious, I mean, China's done the dabbling, but it seems like they're a lot more serious. So yeah, to me, that just seems like there's probably easier trades to be, to be bearish China, even short Kiwi or short New Zealand dollar, short Aussie kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so what about like the the, the um, interconnections between Chinese weakness, let's say this control deleveraging, which translates into a weaker economy and weaker demand, by the way, from China, the interconnections to other type of markets, right? I mean, the, the typical ones would be you take the countries that are the most connected via trades to China, right? And nowadays, China is the first trade partner of most countries in the world. So what you have to do is take like what countries has the highest percentage of their exports towards China in percentage of total, right? And then you would find all the Asian countries, of course, like Indonesia, Thailand, et cetera, et cetera. But then amongst the large ones, you would find Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, by the way, as China's yeah. a very large trade partner. So you'll find a couple of these countries, right? But also I wondered, uh, what about direct investments, like China accumulated all these reserves over the years, and, and they've been investing literally these reserves also in other countries. And there are recipients that are pretty large. For instance, Australia. Australia is a large recipient of Chinese investments. And if this stops, can it hurt Australia as well as a bilateral, like as an orthogonal way to expressing the idea? Yeah, I think so. But the funny thing is that the terms of trade has actually been very strong in those countries. Mm. So usually the transmission, the if, if it was a negative China story, would be commodities lower and then exports down and GDP down. But that the terms of trade have been pretty good in those countries. I have found in the last couple of years that the beta to China of those currencies has been very low for some reason. Like it when the China reopening happened, everyone tried to buy Aussie and it didn't really work. But then when China's sucking wind, people try to sell Aussie and it doesn't really work. It's like, and I think the reason is that the beta of commodities to China has gone down a lot as well. So it, commodities are moving for, for many other reasons these days. And it's not like in 2013 or whatever, when it was just China up, China down, commodities up, commodities down. And I think it might be because everyone kind of understands the reality of like a quasi balance sheet recession is a long drawn out thing. It's not like a crisis event like 2008. It's just like a long, boring thing that is generally going to kind of be buzzing in the background. Yeah. Kind of like Canada's productivity is not very good and, but you can't really trade it. It's just like, that's like a negative, a long-term negative that's just sitting in the background. Yeah. And I feel like China's kind of becoming that now where yes, it's a drag on, on Aussie and on commodities, but net net there's, there's many other factors moving, more cyclical factors, moving, moving commodities and, and Aussie. Yeah. I think I agree with that. Um, before we jump to the trade idea and as people can hear, not much in the structure has changed. Uh, we blubber for 20 minutes, but then at the end of the day, we try to make it actionable. But before we jump there, I think we owe a couple of minutes to Bitcoin. It's going to the moon. What's going on? Yeah, it's amazing. It looks like almost like a short squeeze or or like in 2008 when the front month oil futures went to 150 
but the the second and third contract were still trading at like a hundred or something. Yeah. Um, where there's just like a huge mismatch between supply and demand. And it's funny to me because uh, when the ETF happened, my thought was that, you know, markets are pretty efficient. It'll be priced in. And then we'll kind of go into this boring kind of struggle between the flow and the people that are long trying to take profit and it'll be boring, but it hasn't worked out that way at all. It feels like the demand from the ETF is not finding any supply. And I mean, the yesterday, I think the range was 5864. Yeah, it's uh, it was quite ballistic yesterday. I think yeah. three three k up, three k down in a few hours. Quite impressive. Um, I mean, the the reading here is uh, to be frank. I was pretty surprised to see that gold had hit new all time highs in December uh, last year, so two months ago. Bitcoin yeah. was far away from new all time highs, and of course, you can draw differences between one and another. But if sure. there's one difference, is that Bitcoin is a higher vol more aggressive asset than gold if you want to yeah. you know put them in the same monetary type of uh, hedge framework but so actually bitcoin should have overperformed because nasdaq and the russell and all the more aggressive equities were doing well so if bitcoin has its properties of being a more aggressive version of gold in other words then right. why would it be lagging behind and and you know then there was a ctf story so you do you wouldn't want to touch it because you didn't know what the effect was really some people said it's going to be bearish some people said it's already priced in and then it goes out and a few weeks later it just goes to the moon <laughs> it's yeah incredible. it's amazing i mean it shows the importance of flows because there was a lot of people just cutting exposure hedge hedge funds shutting down and all that in the in the prior period that you're talking about and now there's just more demand, like there's more buyers and sellers, which is like the stupidest explanation for why a market's going up. Yeah. But sometimes if a client comes in and says, buy a billion dollar yen, like, guess what? Dollar yen's going up for, for a little bit, you know? Yeah. And that, that seems to be actually a pretty good framework for Bitcoin is understanding the flows. Um, and I think I'm not expert in that, but people do a good job of that using like uh, margin and margin analysis and like the, how, how, the, the the leverage and and all that stuff um to kind of determine which way the flows are um and obviously that's what's dominating now it's insane yeah it's quite insane but okay apart from saying it's insane and going to the moon you and i can't really add a lot of value on bitcoin i am afraid um but we can try to figure out a couple of trade ideas so then what's yours go ahead so I, I like Canada yen lower. Um, I've generally been bullish dollar yen most of this year because like we said at the top of the show, uh, like six cuts seemed insane, but three cuts now seems pretty reasonable. So I think yields can stabilize here. And generally yen is a yields proxy. Um, so I like Canada yields lower, especially into Bank of Canada next week. Uh, I think RBNZ kind of showed the way. Um, they have very similar economies. And inflation's way lower in Canada, so yeah. there's plenty of room for the bank to be dovish if they want. Um, and GDP is not good there, and they've had massive population growth in Canada too, which is interesting that that hasn't flowed through to GDP. Um, and there's a lot of leverage, and inflation is way down, and rates are are very restrictive. So I, I like Canada lower, uh, Canadian dollar weaker against the yen, and the reason I'm picking the yen is because I think generally global yields are kind of peaking for a bit. So if global yields go lower, usually that means yen appreciates. And on top of it, I would say, Brent, if these guys in Japan finally decide to get the ball rolling <laughs> and exiting negative interest rates, then it maybe helps. 
I also like Japanese yen upside. I have it against Swiss franc myself. Uh, so short Swiss and long yen. Um, but my trade idea is more longer time horizon. So one thing people should know is that you are a more uh, a bit shorter time oriented uh, type of trader than I am. I mean, my general yes. time horizon is like one to three months and yours will be like one to two weeks. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes even shorter, but I wouldn't usually discuss the short-term trades because they're over before I could talk about them. <laughs> but yeah, usually my time horizon is like one week to three, maybe one month at the most, but usually closer to one or two weeks. Yeah. So for me, so I like longer. to do a lot of stuff around events and the run up into events and things like that. Yeah. So for me, it's a bit longer. It's one to three months. And I am going with another unwind of a carry trade because Canada, Japan is basically a carry trade that you're trying to unwind a bit on the way down. Yeah. And what I am trying to unwind here is dollar Brazil. So I like dollar Brazil upside and Brazil has been a big carry trade, successful one for a couple of years now, high interest rates, good terms of trade, solid economy, and everybody has been buying Brazilian assets. But right now, inflation is falling like a stone. Brazil, big, big ties to China when it comes to foreign direct investments, trade flows. Again, inflation is really low. The Bank of Brazil is starting cutting interest rates already. I think they'll have to do more than what's priced in. So dollar long, Brazil short, hoping that the carry trade unwinds. I think positioning will help you there too. I was in Brazil um, at the start of February and almost everyone there was received rates in some country, um, which obviously rates have gone up quite a bit. So that's probably not true anymore, but most people were also short dollar Brazil. Um, it's, it's a nice trade fundamentally and it's like in theory and it's, it's positive carry, but you know, carry trades tend to be asymmetrical when they, when they unwind, they unwind super fast. You just got to have good timing. Okay, so we have two trade ideas. So next week, people can already insult us for being wrong, which will be the case more very often. Um, uh, we have, as part of the podcast here also, Brent, the best thing and the most stupid thing that we have read or listened to this week. So I'll go with the best thing and you'll go with the stupidest thing. Shall we do sure. that? Yeah. Okay, so the best thing that I read this week is a blog on the Kelly Criterion. Um, and it's... Uh, very important framework to size trade correctly. Um, so I suggest that people go and read it. We'll put it in the show notes and, you know, just a few words. This Kelly criterion is nothing else than trying to measure your subjective odds of a trade. So what are your subjective probabilities against what are the market probabilities? And then at the end, try to size in a way that you optimize your upside over time. So if your odds are your way and you have an edge, Kelly criterion helps you to size positions correctly to optimize your PL given your edge. Problem, said the Kelly criterion, doesn't take into account the path to get there. Maybe despite the odds were good, you still lose money four times in a row. And the Kelly criterion will often tell, tell you to put, I don't know, three, four, five percent of your assets into a single trade. Then all of a sudden you're down 20% and you get fired. So the article talks about how to manage a bit this Kelly criterion story. Yeah, it's a great framework um, and you don't have to use it as a math equation. You can just understand the framework and then kind of tailor it to your own environment or your own trading environment. What's the stupidest thing you've heard? So this thing is actually awesome, but it's stupid as well. So this guy um, at Graduated Ben tweeted, when I'm at Chipotle, I always wait until after the employee puts the first scoop of chicken on my burrito to ask for double chicken. So the size of the first scoop isn't compromised by the knowledge I'm getting a second scoop and now the employee has shown their hand in terms of their default scoop size, so they can't skip with my second scoop. 
And I think that's awesome. Like it's stupid. It's, it's so stupid that it's awesome. I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's genius. It's stupid genius. Yeah, but it's, it's genius. right on the line. It's perfect. Okay. Um, well, what can I say, Brent? I've had a lot of fun. I hope people enjoyed this good old episode of the Macro Trading Floor with a brand new co-host, which is my friend Brent. And um, I would say that's it for today. So shall we say goodbye? All right. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Elf. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll be back again next week. All right, ciao. The content provided on the Macro Trading Floor podcast is for general information purposes only. No information or other content provided in this podcast should be considered as investment advice. Seek independent professional consultation in the form of legal, financial, and fiscal advice before making any investment decision. Always perform your own due diligence.